everyone. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. I think you're going to get so much out of today's episode. I was honored to speak with the amazing, incredible Safwan Shah. If you're not familiar with him, he is a founder and CEO of a company called PayActive. They are a certified B Corp and are really all about bringing security, dignity, and financial wellness to low-income workers. Safwan has an incredible background. He's actually an engineer by training, and he's a serial entrepreneur, and he's built his career around harnessing the power of technology to create a more equitable society, and he has unlocked this concept of time, time as it comes to how we receive our paychecks, and there's just so much in that and things that I never knew until I read his book, and we had such an incredible conversation, and As successful as he is, he's so humble and shares his own self-doubts, his own self-limiting narrative. And I think you're going to have your eyes opened and get a lot out of this episode and walk away with some helpful nuggets and thinking about things a little bit differently. All right. Well, Safwan, thank you for being here. It is so nice to spend time with you. We've been orbiting each other as uh, Conscious Capitalism Press founding authors, but this is the first time we've actually sat down to talk. So I'm super excited to be with you this afternoon. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. You're welcome. You're welcome. So you, I learned about you, obviously, through Conscious Capitalism Press. And I remember that Corey Blake sent an early copy of your book and said, hey, can you read early chapters? I was like, oh, my gosh, this is this is fantastic. And and, and what a great background. So I, I was really struck that you you have a totally different background than what you're doing, it seems like, which we'll get into in a minute in a minute. And you said your background is actually in electrical engineering, yet you ended up working on like Hollywood movies. So can you just share a little bit about like your your background? Because I think it's fascinating. So I always uh, thank you for um, making my background interesting. But uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, so by, tra- by training, I'm an engineer. So I'm a regular engineer. Electrical engineering was my bachelor's. And when I came for graduate school to the U.S., I, I went for a master's in electrical engineering. And then I did a Ph.D. in aerospace engineering. And the reason I did a master's and a PhD was because uh, that's where I got admission. So I did that. And in in aerospace engineering, that's where the funding was. So I did aerospace engineering. So perhaps you'd say that, didn't I have a choice? I don't know if I ever thought of it that way. Just the opportunity to do something exciting was exciting enough. So that's how I ended up doing these things. I was a training, but so by training, I'm an engineer and all the various um, other experiences like working with NASA experiments and so on was an opportunity that I got while I was in my graduate school and I became a part-time researcher on another in another lab. So this is how all these things came together. And since you mentioned the Hollywood connection, it isn't really a Hollywood connection per se, except that once I designed an experiment, or I was part of a team that designed an experiment, which was part of these uh, aircrafts which test out microgravity so they go in a parabolic kind of state and for 20 30 40 seconds everything inside the plane floats so um, tom hanks was uh, uh, doing practice or whatever rehearsals for his upcoming uh, movie i think apollo 13 and that's my connection to Hollywood. Did you call it like the Vomit Tron or something like yeah. that? So that, that it, it's, a, it's a Boeing. It's a Boeing, regular Boeing uh, 720, I believe, or 707. And it actually uh, goes through this parabolic uh, motion, goes up very fast and then 
kind of floats and comes down. And um, uh, it's called the vomitron because it, it sets in nausea and all kinds of things. Um, that was my. I, I get that from a Ferris wheel, so I would definitely <laughs> would not work very well. I, yeah, yeah. We go to, if we go to any rides with my son, I'm the one that has to take Dramamine and put the little wrist things. Uh, on. Not good. Uh, I would I not do well on that. I would not do well on that. <laughs> Well, and I was also appreciative of your background because my dad is a mechanical engineer. So I grew, I grew up around engineers. So I, I, I understand that well. So, so, so tell me then, how did that get you into uh, what you're doing now with, with pay active um, and, and really what, what you're trying to accomplish with the work you're doing? Cause it's so, so important. And I was so struck by things that I never knew anything about when you talk about batch processing and timing of pay and, and just how low income wage earners are so disproportionately impacted by just systems that don't need to be there. Yeah. So, so now if you fast forward, so by training, I'm an engineer and then, uh, you know, like most people, uh, they look for a job and so forth. So I also had similar struggles. I came to Silicon Valley in the mid nineties, 94 to be exact and uh, looked for a job and, you know, got into some position, which was you know, somewhere between engineering and product and so on. And But that was a very small phase of my life. Very early on, kind of figured that um, I wanted to do something on my own. And because when you do a PhD, in my case, that's an additional three, four years of education, right? So what happens is all your friends have moved on in life and they have a two-car garage and very happily settled while you did nothing else but stay in campus or college. You're, <laughs> you're a cross between an educated derelict and a ponytail and no money. So <laughs> that's what happens. That's what a PhD does to many people because you just spend a few more years. Yeah. I got mine while I was working. So I was asleep deprived trying to, yeah, but I get it. You get it, right? That uh, everyone that you knew before, They've moved on and they just say, why are you doing this? Okay, very good. I was good. like, I'll see you in four years when my dissertation is done. And yeah, that's pretty the, much. And that is, that's exactly. So when I came up to, you know, came up for air or I had graduated, most of my friends were happily settled and doing very well in life while I was still poor and still <laughs> struggling. <laughs> and so in, in, in that, uh, so anyway, suffice to say, I, uh, I was in Silicon Valley, so there are opportunities and so on. And I became an entrepreneur by accidentally is what I'd like to say. And uh, the, the idea of be active didn't start then. It was, you know, whatever I did, whatever I could at that time to make a success. And in that journey, I suppose this thing kept coming back to me that within America or within the United States, there was this dichotomy that we, on the one hand, we are the richest country in the world. And on the other hand, there isn't, um, you know, you don't see that affluence uh, spread all the way to 100%, you know, 60, 70%, which is a rather large number in our in our country to be struggling and the word paycheck to paycheck and things like that. But it didn't all sort of click in you know, one day. It was only after the 2009 uh, meltdown when, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, big crash came, 2008, 2009, that I started noticing that um, all the news and everything was full of the struggles and you know what of people living, you know they'd lost their homes and lines at food banks and things like that. And it, it bothered me, in a, in a sort of both in an emotional way, but also in an intellectual way that this doesn't jive. That here's an ocean full of water, but not a drop to drink, or you know what is the what is going on? 
And that set the trajectory in which I became very curious. And it became, um, you know, I'll stop in a second, it just became like an intellectual challenge. Mm. And then all the pieces, then I started building. And that was the beginning of Pay Active. It was a question, why in the United States, 70%, 60%, so many people live paycheck to paycheck. Is there a shortage of money or opportunity or what? So that's the beginning. I, so I'm curious, you said it started as an intellectual, but it sounds like it's shifted into something more. So can you talk about kind of that shift? So interestingly, and, you know, I've spoken about it in, on other occasions, so that phase between 2009 to 2011, I had sold my company and I was looking for what's next. And I was kind of I wouldn't say I was confused, but I was kind of hunting for something which would make me kind of literally leap out of bed with joy that this is what I'm going to do today. And that hunt was going on and I was constantly looking for things. And this whole um, intellectual exercise started because I, you know, I think it was 2010 or almost 10 years ago, when I asked this question of somebody that why do people wait two weeks to get paid? And um, also during that time, I remembered an incident, um, which recently I did a TED talk and I narrated that incident, that when I was, uh, my first job was as as on a production line. And I was an engineer, but I was learning how to operate this line. So I was actually sitting on the line and working. And I remember one of the employees that was there had gone to ask the manager if uh, she could get uh, an advance on her salary. And um, he had, the manager said, no, you can't, I'm not a lender. Uh, But she said, but I've already earned these seven days that I'm asking you for, and I have an emergency. And and she had a comment which I or a statement which I can never forget, which is, but they do owe me the money. Hmm. And that thing, I didn't know it was that, it was there at the back of my mind that I had seen this incident once in my life where somebody had asked somebody for money they had already earned and they had been told. And I kind of put that in the book as well. But over the years, that thing had been there. So when I started looking for, I was still looking for 20 years, I was looking for this answer. Why do people wait two weeks to get paid? And I got the space in the 2010-2011 timeframe to actually dig deeper and ask the question, why? Because I felt that there was an opportunity to unlock that money. That money was sitting in the system and people were borrowing against it from payday lenders and paying late fees and so on. So I said, maybe there is something here if people got access to their earnings in a more timely fashion and this two-week fixed mechanical cycle you know it's like you can't eat until 3 p.m every single day that's a very fixed mechanical what if you're sick and you need to have medicine what do you do you don't eat or so so that kind of so i said if people don't have money at all is it okay for them to take small amount or if they have an emergency, can they take from their earnings rather than go out? So this is how it started. And then the whole, I went into economics and history and history of finance and how governments, um, royalty paid people, how wars were won, how soldiers were paid. I went into all that, how scripture thought about it. 
how Moses talked about it in Deuteronomy 24, 15, how every religion looked at it. So this is how it yeah. became an intellectual exercise. Well, and it's fascinating because you think about it, it's just, oh, you work and you get paid. And, and even some some places they might get paid weekly, like temp agencies and stuff, but it's still for like the previous week, like they're not paid yeah. current. And I was so struck by when you look at the stats, I think it's probably worse now, but in your book, you talk about 90 million people living paycheck to paycheck and that most people couldn't even survive like a $400 emergency. And right. So you have all these payday lenders that you talk about, you call them predators that are really, uh, you know, people who can least afford it, but when they have a financial emergency, they have no other recourse. And, and it, and I, it never dawned on me. And I'm guessing that a lot of people, if they haven't read your book who are listening to this, it never dawned on them that waiting two weeks to get paid, like, it doesn't have to be that way and why it can to be. So can you talk a little bit about this whole nature of time and the batch processing um, and then really kind of how you see it being more predatory um, and, and, and then really what, what you found is a solution? Because I just think it's fascinating. So I'll give you an example. So landlords get paid in advance, right? You pay your rent, they get paid in advance. On January 1st, you're getting... You're paying them for January 1st to January 31st. Um, Vendors, people who supply products to us, either get paid upon delivery or there are terms set that the price will be slightly higher if you pay us 30 days later. Mm -hmm. But most people, most vendors get paid uh, with some terms or upon delivery. Customers pay us instantly. If I walk into a Starbucks or an Apple store and I say to them that I'll you know, pay you in two weeks. Can I buy a walk away with a computer or can I have this latte and I'll pay you in two weeks? <laughs> That'll work well. <laughs> They'll laugh you out of the store, right? And uh, however, but the employee at Starbucks waits two weeks to get paid. So how, why, what is the reason? The customer paid you instantly. I got my coffee and I paid you. You paid your landlord instantly. Your vendors that supply you with various equipment, they're either terms or you pay them upon delivery. But the person who works behind the counter or the barista or whatever has to wait two weeks. And the who's hurting here? Mm-hmm. The most. So that is the premise that why are they? So having framed that, framed it as like this, that why do employees have to wait two weeks? The second question is, is there anyone deriving benefit from this two-week wait? So the conventional answer is that um, um, there is interest to be made on the money that you hold of your employees. So if you have 10,000 employees, each one's making $1,000 a week, so it's $10 million. So you make an interest. The last time, most interest rates in a one-month period are not as big as you'd think. So then it's just a myth. Mm -hmm. It was things like this, which I kind of thought and said that, let me ask one more question. That during this two-week wait, and I'll use two-week as an example, it could be one week and it could be a month in many cases. During these two weeks, who's benefiting? Mm. Turns out that the late fee industry, the overdraft fee industry, the much smaller in comparison payday loan industry, they are the ones, the corner store, 
which gives you a payday loan or you know cashes your checks they are the ones the late payment that you make on your daycare or on your telephone bill somebody get charges you $30 $40 so i started adding those numbers together and it turned out that cost of waiting to get paid can be as high as $250 a month wow because people will get hit by two or three overdrafts in america 35 billion dollars per year is the overdraft fee so 1 billion 35 dollar events if you and i didn't pay an overdraft then who did hmm late fees there is no way to calculate late fees but i ask you this question that if everyone why do you check your statement every month because you want to make sure that you didn't end up paying a late fee the timing and all that so timing is everywhere so there's a cost of waiting to get paid the two week cycle it's about 200 250 all those costs are there because you live in real time but you get paid in a batch or mechanically so there is this natural you know there's this misalignment and you're and if you're living paycheck to paycheck then it's a tight rope a slight a tiny shock and you've got a 35 dollar fee that you have to pay so it was things like this that um uh, fascinated me i can and, and i can only imagine that with covid right with so many workers that are already living paycheck to paycheck that are working in industries that either shut down or they were furloughed or they were laid i can only imagine it's probably gotten phenomenally worse with all of the i'm just going to say insanity that 2020 has brought yeah i mean it was a it was a you know i i was thinking about this and before uh, the global pandemic there was a sense of urgency i would go around telling people about it and they you know get surprised oh, we didn't think about it thank you we didn't know so everybody said that this was a blind spot and there was a sense of urgency that was building because we've been going to businesses and giving them our product that you know your employees could benefit from it and that's been going on but what happened with the global pandemic with covid the urgency turned into an emergency mm. and the outcome that this transition from urgency to emergency there was another amazing outcome and that is we finally found a name for those people that suffer the most and they turned out to be essential workers mm. and what really is an essential worker i've thought a lot about it and an essential worker is someone who can't stay at home because if they stayed at home the economy stops the country stops that's why they are essential so that they can keep delivering groceries so i could sit in the comfort of my home and be on my zoom calls so there is an irony to this the urgency becomes an emergency and we find a name finally for those people who actually you know they are the ones who create this economy but they don't enjoy the they can't participate in it yeah i mean it's it's ironic it is ironic well and there's a great quote in your book it's just short and simple but you say perhaps without even realizing many employers are squeezing the humanity out of their workers and our whole purpose is to rehumanize the workplace. So I I'm curious when you talk about it be going from urgency to emergency and this whole waiting two weeks to 
get paid, which is just kind of deeply rooted systems. I can just see people, this is the way we've always done it. That's just how you do it. Right. And then you've got this industry that just is predatory that creeps up. What is the remedy that you found or what can, what can businesses do about it? Or maybe if someone who's listening, they're not a business owner, but they could bring this forward and say, oh my gosh, this could help us as essential workers. This could help us that are low wage earners or paycheck to paycheck. Cause that's really who you're trying to support, right? Is trying to kind of lift, lift up that group of people. So talk a little bit about how you've remedied this, this timing issue. Yeah. So first of all, you have to recognize that there is a problem, which we've done. We were in denial before. Now there's recognition that there is this massive 70%, whatever, hundred million people in the U S who live paycheck to paycheck. So now, it arrives. So the way I framed it in my head, and I let call it an additional intellectual exercise. I said there are three things that you can uh, three variables, three things that you can change when it comes to payroll. One is as a government, it is the level of salary, how much you're paid. The second is the structure of salary, how you're paid, whether it's commissions, whether it's you know through tax um, benefits and so on. So. The first one is how much you're paid, which is level of salary. Second is how you're paid, which is structure of salary. The level of salary is a government issue, right? You have to go on the ballot to say people need to be paid more or less, whatever. That's a minimum wage, whatever, that debate. Not for an engineer to get into. I mean, I can have opinions, but that's I can't do much about that. The second one is the structure of salary, which is also legislative and policy and whatever that, what taxes on which level and Taxes should be progressive and regressive and all, not for me to solve. But I realized that there was one other variable that the world had missed for thousands of years. And that is when you're paid or timing of pay. So that's how time comes into it. When I became fascinated about it was, it's about time. That's why the book was called, it's about time. There's a double entendre there. And I even, and I, I went to crazy lengths to find and draw analogies. Like I even connected it with Newton. And I actually, later on, it turned out to be a good and an accurate connection. So Newton was a mathematician, right? A physicist. He was at Cambridge in, in, in England. And he figured out that, the, you know, there's the, a little bit of engineering term that the rate of change of something is velocity, right? The rate of change of distance is velocity. You have to drive 20 miles you can get those 20 miles in um, whatever, five minutes if you drive at a certain speed. So rate of change of distance is velocity. And rate of change of velocity is acceleration. And I said, is there such a way to look at salary? The, the, the rate of, the timing of pay is critical. And it is during that phase, um, uh, Rosie, that I stumbled upon a paper it was called Timing of Pay, and it was by this uh, professor, uh, two, two researchers out of uh, Dartmouth and Harvard. And I picked up the phone and they said, if you're paid less, you should be paid more, paid more frequently. And it was written in 2009 or 10. It was just, it was out. It wasn't really officially out. And I picked up the phone and called him and I said, I'm very excited. He said, I'm a theoretical economist. Why are you? And I said, this is why, because so many people are uh, you know, struggling between paychecks. And your paper says that it could be good for them. If they are paid less, they should be paid more frequently. And I want to see the math. And these are the ways that 
I guess um, timing kept coming back. And you know, the, the whole time concept was everything for me, that there is a time issue here. Mm-hmm. And one other conversation that I had, which was eye-opening for me, I was you know, sitting with my team and we were designing a savings product. And how do you get somebody who's making $12, $15 an hour to kind of buy into this notion that they can save money? Because it's hard, right? When you make so little, you say save 10%. So I say, I make $500 a week. You want me to save $50? And it's not going to work that way. So how do you do it? So I asked everyone around me in the office and I said, um, how much do you get paid every day? And nobody could answer the question. And you try this thought experiment. Salaried people go and ask them, how do you make per day? They don't know the answer. Now go to somebody who's an hourly worker and ask them, how much do you make per day? And I did that. I went out of the office and there was this guy standing there and I knew. And I said, how much? He said, $114.20. I freaked out. What? So he said, I know exactly that today I worked eight hours and this is my rate. And I said, what else do you know? He says, a backpack is three hours of work. I have to buy it today for my child. And I said, oh my goodness, we're doing it all wrong. So I went back and we designed a software product where we said that instead of saving 10%, you should be saving two hours a day. Mm. Because suddenly it becomes like, if you ask somebody that you have to save 10% or $20 a day, they will, oh, I can't. But if you say, save one hour a day, save 10 minutes a day. And within... 100 days, that 10 minutes would be a 1,000. And now it's more than $500. That's $10 an hour. So behavior, nobody has actually spent the time to reimagine products for those people who live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. I, well, I, I love that. And it is such a, it's such a huge issue. And I, and I you know, think about, what 2020 has brought that so many, not everybody, but so many people who are paycheck to paycheck are in that essential worker category. Right. And so I, it does, it does bring it to light at at a different level. And I'm curious because there's two things that I'm hearing, which I, which I, I want you to expand on. One is it's the solving for this timing issue of pay, but it also sounds like there's an education, right. That, that people who don't think that they can afford it, that don't have the money that if emergency comes that are paycheck to paycheck, how, like, it doesn't seem like it would even be on the radar. Like, how could I save something when I know down to the penny what something costs and I'm, you know, scrambling. So how, how do you solve for, how do you solve for people? It's really about their financial well-being, right? And, and helping people kind of, I mean, this might be overextending, but it's really the kind of helping lift them up out of poverty a little bit or help them be more solid on solid footing so that they're not subject to these predators of the payday loans and the late fees and whatnot that are out there just waiting for them to mess up. You raise an amazing point. Um, And I also, in the last few years, have been um, completely consumed by thinking about this particular problem. So there is this category called financial wellness. And how was this category created? It was created by um, banks and uh, other agencies to improve the lives of, uh, give people, you know, banks say financial wellness. Morgan Stanley would say that, you know, big banks. That 
use our products, retirement products, insurance products, and you'll annuity. So it's a, it's a word which ties with financial wellness. If you look at it, you, you have to have some basic uh, financial status to actually think of financial wellness. However, we have taken the same products and we are trying to apply them to people making $1,000 every two weeks or living at $25,000, $35,000 a month, a year. It doesn't work that way. Their struggle is not for financial wellness. It is for a livelihood. Mm. And I say that there is this small, there is this huge actually gap, but a, people don't get the people in America don't say that there's an issue of livelihood because we, meet, we believe all livelihood needs are met. And we don't want to think that there are people struggling for livelihood. What is livelihood? It's food, fuel. You have to fit, put fuel in your car every month. Auto to own a car. Shelter to have a home. Insurance could be health. Now, if we look at these four or five different things, do you think we have solved all these? Food, oh, heck no. Food, fuel, shelter, auto, insurance. Right. So financial wellness starts when all livelihood needs are met in any civilized society. Yeah. And I question that. So... How does that fit into all this? I think there is a struggle for getting basic livelihood issues resolved. And that's where I think we are still dealing with millions of people. For them, surviving is the first goal. Thriving is not even in their mind yet. They just need to survive. Yeah. Well, and it's it's hard to... It's hard to be fulfilled in your life if that's your mindset, right? If you are just literally in survival mode, um, that that's rough. I mean, that and there's so many people that are are doing that. So, can you speak a little bit more about how how you're helping to remedy that and maybe what you're seeing um, as a result? Because pay active, right? I mean, you're kind of trying to solve for this to the to the extent that you can, and I think it's just fascinating. And and I would love to know what what you're learning, what you're seeing, what the response has been. So now that it has become a category, what we do, which is access to your wages as you're earning them, so rather than wait two weeks. So, so it's small amounts that people get. They take 50, 100, $200. So the first thing that happens is to your word that you use, their well-being. It's almost like they feel that they are in control. Imagine leaving your home without your wallet and um, or an empty wallet. And uh, uh, it's going to be a stressful day uh, because you don't have money for food and all that. But imagine that after four or five hours of working, you have access to, to four hours, assuming it was real time. That is pretty different, right? So it immediately creates a sense of control. It builds confidence that if needed, I have the money. It's like it's, a, it's like you can breathe. That's like a weight yeah. off your shoulder. Now you do. It's almost like the. I often say, use this example that if your refrigerator was full of every shelf had food in it, would you eat all day long? Not. 
no, no. <laughs> so why this belief that if you get, if you take money every day, do you think you'll spend it every day? If you need to take, you should have the choice to access money you've already earned. This, that, this assumption, this paternalistic assumption that they don't know how to manage the money is the first myth that has been shattered by our work. People use us, interestingly enough, they never even take, so we allow up to 50, 60% of what you've earned. So if you've earned 100, you can get 50 or 60. That's what we allow. So it's got an inbuilt card rate. You can't take all of the money. And this is something that we started with, and now it's a flexible number. You can go up to 70, but what, would, what, did, what did we find out? People don't take all the money that they have access to. Then the second thing is we thought people will take it every single day if they had allowed. So about a year, two years ago, we added this card with our product that whatever you earned, you could move it to the card and there's no fee. There is no fee to get the money from us because we make it when you use the card. And I thought that they'll use it every day. Nobody did. Hmm. They use it once, twice, three times. Sometimes they'll use it more. Sometimes they'll use it once. So they are right-sizing, right-timing the money. It's almost like it's a safety net, right, that, that's there. So it's, it's, It is also a change in life, right? If you are going to be paid less or you're low income, then you should be paid more frequently. Plain and simple. If I'm going to go on a 900-calorie-a-day diet, will I eat all the 900 calories at 7 a.m.? It's common sense. Right. This, but we kind of have this same rule. We are taking one size fits all for the what, what, what's good for the white collar, their type of financial wellness and so on is not what applies here because there's too little money to play with. So you have to reimagine how they spend, how they save, how they buy their products. We've got to create a whole class of products that are applicable to this. Uh, workforce. Yeah. Well, I, I love that. I mean, because we're all about human workplaces and, and everybody, right? And so I love that there are so many people that are forgotten and that don't, um, that don't have the ability to even, like you said, they can't even think about thriving in their life because they're just totally in survival mode. And I think that when you have stressors like the world is thrown at us this year, and I'm sure there'll be other ones in the future because that's the nature of the world we live in. It's really giving people a little bit of peace of mind or it's one less thing they they have to to worry about. And I love that you're doing like some education and stuff with, with it too. I mean, that just, um, yeah, it, it's fantastic. And so I want to sort of shift gears, but not, not really, because one of the things that this podcast is about, so people are listening like, okay, that's great. That's fascinating. What does it have to do with me? Cause either I am a white collar worker or I have no idea how to like bring this into my employer and we'll put links to pay active and everything in your, in your book, in the show notes. But what I, what I so love about this, that you said, you know, it started out as an intellectual journey. And this the premise of this whole podcast is that everybody has the opportunity to show up as a leader in their life in their personal life or professional life to, to become a better version of themselves and make a positive impact. And where you see a need or an opportunity and to get curious about it and investigate and to speak up and call up people who wrote a paper. And, and I love that you did that. Like you're like, my background's engineering. It's not in timing of pay or finance, but you just, this, this question kept coming at you and you kept digging into it. And now it's making such a huge difference for people. And so 
one of the things I've also learned though, is that when it comes to showing up as a leader, that sometimes we have our own narrative that can get in our own way. Like, you know, who am I? I'm making this up, but you might have this, who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer. I'm not a finance person or, or whatnot. And, and one of the things that I try to do in this podcast is help people realize it's a human experience for us to tell ourselves these self self-limiting stories, even if we've been really successful from the outside and, and what do we do about it? So this is a question I ask every guest that I would love to get your thoughts to is really for you, Safwan, what is a self-limiting story that you find yourself telling yourself sometimes? And then when it shows up, how do you deal with it or how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader in your life? That's a, that's a tough question. I think there's so many. Uh, I mean, we, we anchor ourselves to so many things and sabotage ourselves. I, I would, so when I came to America 31 years ago, I was coming to a place where you could do anything. So for an immigrant, it is a slightly different uh, uh, way to look at it. And I'll frame it that way. That when I came to America as a young man and went to graduate school, I actually believed that this in this country, you could do anything. Hmm. And I think every immigrant comes here with that. And I was, the, I guess, my first generation, my kids will be second generation in that sense. So that's the first barrier that I broke. The second barrier that I broke, and I wrote it in the book, and uh, I learned it from others here that you don't have to do anything. You choose what you do. It was such a fascinating experience. And I've talked about it somewhere else that I became an engineer because my dad told me to become an engineer. And uh, I didn't know if I liked it or not. I went into aerospace because I loved the professor that was there. And he was just the coolest person. And I said, I want to work with him and I'll be his devotee for the rest of my life. I mean, that was the the simplicity, I think, now. So I think the first phase is being in America, there should be no self-limiting thing. The second thing is I go through the usual stuff. I feel like an imposter. I feel that everyone else is smarter than me. I feel that Everyone else knows better than me. I feel that I, I could, there could be a better person to replace me in my job. So I go through all of them. I have to fight them every single day. Yeah. And so when those shows up, when those show up and you fight them, um, what do you do? Like, how do you move beyond that when those show up? Work harder. Uh, lean on others. Ask questions. Say that I don't know. I don't think the world judges you when you say, I really don't know the answer. Can we work together? So I have, I think, been very lucky that I have this inner belief that people are ready to help you if they know how. That people are inherently good, but you have to tell them what your problem is (laughs) if you don't tell them. Well, I love that because I do think when anyone who sits and tries to pretend that they have it all together or have all the answers, that that's actually off-putting, right? And when we are human and we say, hey, I, I want to learn or I don't know the answer or I need help, it the natural response usually is not judgment. The natural response is empathy, right? And it's connection. But yet 
so often we have this narrative of, oh, I'm going to look weak or I'm going to look less than, or people are going to think less of me if I do that. But it, it's it's the opposite. So it, it's kind of an opportunity to reset, right? Think about if someone tells you that they don't know the answer, do you judge them? Or if they say, hey, let me find out. Or if someone yeah, um, ask for help. I know I don't judge them. I'm like, good for you for, for admitting that you need help or, you know, yeah, what can I do? So it's so interesting how we think it's okay in other people, but in ourselves, we get caught up. And yeah, right? and we don't even find out. Like I, I think for the longest time in life, you don't even know what you're good at. And by the time you discover you're good at something, it's already pretty late in life. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, true, yeah. true. Can be. So let me ask you this then when um, this is kind of a twofold question, but what is one impactful way that you are showing up as a leader in your professional life these days? And what's one impactful way that you're showing up as a leader in your personal life these days? I think, uh, I don't know if I'm doing a good job, but what I'm doing now in my professional life, I am singularly focused on the human condition of our user. And I think that is the best way to remove any confusion of what we are doing. So when you take a company at a company level, it's hard for everyone to agree on three things or or sometimes they agree on one but not the other. But the way I show up or the way I uh, I am doing every single day in the professional, my professional life is to make sure that we understand the user we serve. And the user is not the business, it's the end user, the hourly worker, the low-income worker, the struggling worker. So I think my biggest uh, job is to make everyone understand the joy of sharing or doing something for that worker. It's universally now understood that there is a problem. And I think that's what I'm doing at a professional level. Now, I don't know if that suffices as an answer, but I'm being very honest. That's what I do every single day. I love it. You're rallying around a purpose and you're helping other people. I mean, one, it's enlightening people that there is an issue, but two, you're rallying around a purpose, which is about like the humanity, it's bettering lives, right? right? Exactly. And you're and you're helping others see that. So I think that's phenomenal. I mean, like we put out a video, a two minute video on a robot. I mean, why would a company put a video out on a robot? Because it's called We Heard You. And, you know, so all these things are, I believe that if we know the challenges of our end user, because we are not any technology company, right? We are not even... I mean, you can measure the impact of what we do in in smiles, in joy, in calmness, right? I'm not, I, mean, I don't want to be disparaging, but I could live my life without going to Google for the next month. I swear to God, I could. And Facebook, I could live without it forever, right? Most people could. Mm-hmm. But can you live without getting access to your money? And can you measure the impact of getting $50, so your self-esteem is not compromised. Yeah. That's the impact. So, so this, it's pretty, to me, it's just what a gift to be able to do this for a living. My God. Yeah. On the, the professional side. So now I, I guess I can't avoid, but. The, on the, the personal side. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. Like, what do I do? I'm, a, I think on the, on a personal level, at some point, I 
and this could be just, you know, I, maybe it's my fool's machinations or my imagination. My personal and my professional have blurred, have merged completely. Whether it is my children or my home or my conduct, I live to serve my end, my goal. And I'm so fortunate that I can. I mean, if, if, if there is the famous adage or statement, or maybe it is, and maybe I coined it, I don't know. You are what you hide. Mm. So it has kind of made me think that this work-life balance and all those, I, I've kind of in some ways been so fortunate that what I do as work and what I am as a person have merged. Yeah. I love, well, I love that there's, there's an old saying and I don't know who said it and I'm going to botch it a little bit, but it's basically that when we go to work back when people who did go into office, went into an office that when we go to work, that we leave our car windows cracked a little bit. So our real selves can breathe while we're in there. Meaning, right. We're showing up as a totally different person at work and we're not being our real true self. And what I love is you're being you. And like I said, the line lines are blurred because you're not being one person at work and one person at home. You're looking at how can I serve? How can I serve my family? How can I serve my community? How can I serve, you know, the end user? And so I just, I love that because it's really, I, I think that if we're going to show up as a leader in our lives, we can't have like one version of ourselves and another. We have to really look at, can we really get clear of who we Thank authentically you for saying, are? Thank you for saying that. Sometimes I get into these some people would say that, oh, my work-life balance. When I go home, I love to cook. But I say, maybe you love to cook so you can be good at work the next day. But yeah. so I, I'm not saying in, the, in that way. I mean, of course, we are parents and we, are, you know, we clean the kitchen and we uh, put the laundry in the right place. All those things we do. But I, I think the, there is no separation. There is no sort of, oh, thank God the day is over. Right now I can be somebody else. It's more yeah. of like, yeah, and I get like you might be more relaxed with your friends than you're going to be on a work call or something, but you're still you're still you and and or, you know, your values haven't changed or or how you lean into conversations or opportunities don't change. And that that's what I think is is so important. And um, and I think probably a key to to your ability to thrive in your life personally and professionally. It's kind of fun, right? Because yeah. Yeah, the books I read and, you know, my entire, I mean, these, these are actually books that I read. I mean, I'm sitting in my office and this is stuff that I, whatever I love to do is part of my work. If I study math for interest, that's for the heck of it. It's because I'm applying it to my thinking. Yeah. I would say I haven't read a quote unquote fun book in probably 25 years, but to me, they're all fun. Like, like, I'm just like, oh, yeah, like I don't I don't read like novels. I mean, most of it's business book or leadership book. But to me, it's fascinating because I can glean stuff for my own life, but also look at how can I use it to serve others or educate others or incorporate it in my work. So I love it. I get it. Love it. Love it. So so this um, we're at the point of the podcast that I do with all my guests that's, that I think is fun. And it's kind of a quick questions, rapid fire um, thing. So I'm going to, I have, a, I don't know, 10 or 11 questions and just first oh, wow. thing that pops in your mind. Are you ready? Are you ready to play? I am ready. Okay. Okay. So we're going to start from a little bit more thoughtful to kind of fun and silly. So fill in the blank living authentically is. Honestly. Perfect. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? Die of shame. 
<laughs> you you hide in a shame spiral. Yes. <laughs> Cringe. Cringe. Say <laughs> so maybe tomorrow, next time. <laughs> I love it. I love that you're a successful CEO and author, and right, and you you have it too. So, when's the last time you were courageous, and how did you show up? Three days ago, I went into a major uh, video interview, and I said, "Financial literacy is a myth that needs to be shattered, like yeah. adult financial literacy." Because I actually believe that people are not bad; they just need given bad products. Mm. So it's a it's a contentious statement. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm sure that rocked the interviewer's world a little bit, huh? Well, I hope so. <laughs> hey, shaking things up. I love it. I love it. Something people would be surprised to know about you. I'm shy and reclusive. All right. But yeah, you're out there a bunch. So that's, that, that is surprising. All right. So this one I love to use as a little bit of an icebreaker. Um, it, it's kind of a fun one. So this is if money, right up your alley, but if money, timing, reality were no object, right? Like you can just kind of go into a make-believe universe. Uh, I call it the four C's. So what car would you want to have or drive? What country would you want to visit? What cuisine would you want to eat? It does not have to be related to the country. And what celebrity living or dead would you want to eat that cuisine with? So we'll start with the first C, car. So I have, I have the ability to have any car in the world. So I'm now going to, I would probably not even live on this planet. <laughs> I'll take a rocket ship and go to Mars. But, I love it. You're going to have a rocket ship. That's fantastic. I keep, my, I keep my current car. I drive a Tesla. I've driven one for seven years. So I keep driving it. Nice. 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 Very nice. What Besides Mars, maybe it is Mars, what country would you visit? So I'm originally from Pakistan. And uh, I think I'm, I'm very happy in America. I think it is uh, the most interesting country. And I would, I would keep staying here. Okay. Okay. What cuisine would you want to eat? Um, I think uh, uh, a combination. Uh, I think the fusion between, you know, maybe sushi, very good sashimi and sushi. I think I can live on it. And I would probably need some kebabs because from where I come from, kebabs are necessary to, to nice. live a respectful life. So. <laughs> sushi and kebabs. I love sushi it. We're going to have a new food truck. Sushi and yeah, kebabs. Absolutely. <laughs> and what celebrity living or dead would you want to eat your sushi and kebabs with? I mean, I would love to know Yuval Harari, the guy who wrote Sapiens. I would like to either him or, I mean, that's the guy. Or if, if he's not available, then um, maybe maybe Shakespeare. I would like to spend some time with him. And if he's not available, I'd really want Socrates to come back. <laughs> You're going deep. I love yeah. it. I love I it. I you Harari, Shakespeare, and Socrates. I know, man. Wow. All right. So what's your favorite go-to movie? So, oh God, Matrix. Oh, nice. I have it on my phone. I have it on my iPad. <laughs> and um, if, uh, you know, if I need to watch something, I just start Matrix and I can start it from any section. You know, Mr. Anderson. <laughs> Love it. Your go-to song. So 
I'm a Meatloaf fan and a Pink Floyd fan, so I can listen to anything by Meatloaf or Pink Floyd. So mostly Got it. Pink Floyd, I have a lot of queens, but um, you know now they've become too pop for me for everybody. <laughs> Every, everybody's on the bandwagon now since the movie, right? Love it. Good. Pink Floyd's good. Meatloaf good. All right. Uh, your signature dance move. Close my eyes and jump like crazy. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's fantastic. In another life, your job or career would be what? I would be a lawyer, I think. I wanted to be a lawyer. Any particular kind? I just, I just like the idea of hitting a wall and climbing it. And I love the way lawyers solve problems. I, I, I find them to be the most interesting people. I mean, they, they don't... Pre- I mean, the movie lawyer is very different from the real world lawyer. And, right. But the movie lawyer is somebody so fascinating for me. Nice. And I love it. I love yeah. it. I have a sister who's a lawyer so and some friends who are. So what's something you can't live without books and i'm still are you i could see your pile of books behind you i'm still like i have a whole pile of books too i can't get into the electronic i need to like physically touch and highlight and tab and i've 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 embraced electronic and and, uh, my cost has doubled because then i also (laughs) ordered when i like a book then i order it (laughs) (laughs) so you have both versions that's fantastic Something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy. My work. My work. Totally get that from you. Totally get that. And last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? My work. What a privilege. I'm grateful to my work. I'm grateful to, in some ways, to America, where I, you know, in some ways, you know, as we go through these complex times, I'm grateful uh, to what we have and what I do and to be able to do it and you know, just, I just find it fascinating I don't think I could do this in any other country that's awesome well I want to thank you for the work you're doing that you are filling a need and a niche for people who need it uh, we in the work we do we talk about the social determinants of health and really talk about um, disparities and so I just so admire what you're doing and we'll have links in in the show notes and and just you as a person it's just been really really wonderful to to chat with you and i just thank you for your authenticity and and your presence and and for all that you're doing thank you thank you so much for listening to show up as a leader if you haven't yet subscribed you can find us on apple podcasts spotify or anywhere else you get your podcasts I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com, where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading, and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at rward, Facebook and Instagram at drrosieward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.